So last week, we had the interlude of the woman caught in adultery. As one of your children wrote out on a bulletin, a woman was caught in an adult tree, and they tried to stone her. This week, John's Gospel picks back up with the accusations against Jesus, dissatisfaction and accusations against him for his own self-testimony, his own proper ministry. And we'll get to see him answer these with a very shocking, self-revealing, self-proclaimed gospel. Little Christians, this morning as you listen to our passage and our sermon, I want you to think about a couple of things. Jesus is going to talk about darkness and light. He's going to talk about a lot of other things, but actually everything fits up under those two categories, darkness and light. What Jesus says about himself as light has tremendous importance for us as we think about the gospel and what he does for us. So, little Christians, here's what I want you to think about. You may not be scared of the dark anymore, but when you were, why were you scared of the dark? And are there things in your life or your parents' life or our church's life that we're scared of the same way? And how does Jesus, as the light of the world, overcome those things so that, as John said earlier, we have nothing to fear? What things scare us? And how does Jesus minister his goodness to us so that we have nothing to fear? This is the good news held out to us by John the Apostle, as it was given to him by the Holy Spirit and preserved for the church's life and celebration. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. 
But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, the great irony of coming to hear your word, to look for Jesus and to listen for his gospel, is that our eyes are dull, our hearts are hard and stubborn, and we stop up our ears often. On our own, we are deaf and blind to your goodness. The beauty of Jesus is our Savior, but you are the one who came to give sight to the blind so that we could perceive, see clearly Jesus as the light of the world, to see him in the radiance and glory and beauty of his redemptive ministry, that we could see in him the fullness of our hope. Now, Father... Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your gospel this morning. Comfort our hearts with it. Expose our sin where it lives. And expel our darkness by the light of Jesus and his ministry to us and the continued ministry of your spirit in us. We ask all of these things for your glory in the church and our good and growth as your people. Amen. Please be seated. I opened a second ago by reminding some of our young worshipers that there was a time, even if they don't want to talk about it, that they were afraid of the dark. So I would ask all of you to think back to what it was like to live as a kid, trying to go to sleep in a dark room, and wanting desperately to have some nightlight. What was it about the dark that scared you? What was it about living in the same room, sleeping in the same bed that had been there moments ago in the light that was suddenly terrifying? When you lie there in your bed and things go dark, all of a sudden the room is filled with the unknown. Suddenly you feel very lonely. Your parents and the safety and protection and care that they provide seems very far away. In the dark, we can feel how vulnerable we are. As adults, we think that we outgrow that. We think that that's behind us. That's something that children struggle with. We tell our children constantly when they have the same fear, there's nothing to worry about. It's the same room. You don't have to be afraid of the dark. There's nothing in the dark that can, hear you, that can harm you or hurt you. And if we think that being afraid of darkness is something we outgrow, then Jesus' words sound hollow and not all that good. So this morning, before we're going to understand the goodness of what Jesus promises and what he declares to us by saying, I am the light of the world, we're going to have to appreciate that he did not speak these words in a vacuum. And there is actual darkness to be overcome. There is actual darkness that we fear. 
There's darkness that we live in and suffer in that His goodness as the light of the world overcomes. So if we're going to put these pieces together from the passage and understand the goodness of Jesus as the light of the world, then we need to appreciate where and how we live in darkness and what it means for Jesus as the light of the world to cut through it. Think back biblically to the very beginning. Think back to the way the biblical story starts and the account of creation. Those opening lines that God created the heavens and the earth, and in the beginning it was formless. It was void. It was empty and chaotic and treacherous and deep. It felt erratic but severe. Not for long in the account, but that first line or two. When the world was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep waters. The imagery in the creation account in those first lines should be gripping and powerful for us. These are motifs and themes that directors use in movies and they grip us very easily. Horror movies normally take place at night. Anything scary in a horror movie happens in the dark. The lights are cut out in a storm. Night creeps up and people are left in a forest. To be particular about it, think about the movie The Shining. A lot of things happen in the light of the hotel, but the scariest part is when Jack runs out to hunt his family in the cold and dark of a maze. Inside the maze, the director lets you feel your vulnerability, not knowing where your attack might come from, not knowing what's around each corner, not knowing how quickly you'll be found. You get to play the part of the victim wandering around in the dark. There's a hopeless quality to it. All of that feeling is supposed to be wrapped up. That anxiety and that fear and that vulnerability and that chaos is supposed to be felt in those opening lines when everything is empty and disordered. And the first ordering, the first goodness, and a long list of good things in a creation that will finally be declared very good. The very first kindness of the Lord in creation is His statement, let there be light. And there was light. It punctures all the vulnerability, all of the chaos. As God starts to put order to His creation, things start to be seen. Beauty flourishes, but it's also clearly seen in the light of day. And light starts to govern the creation so that it's not chaos. It's not erratic. It's not a thing to be feared. It's a thing to be enjoyed. And as the story plays out, very quickly, sin enters the picture, and God curses His creation. And the way the story is told, the curse is supposed to feel like what it is. Because of sin and because of God's judgment for sin, the creation is starting to come unraveled. Not His rule over creation, but creation itself is starting to fray at the ends like a rope. 
all that was orderly, all that was good and harmonious in creation, all that was properly related to itself and to Adam and Eve and to God himself, all of the beauty seen so clearly in the light of day in this very good creation is starting to be pulled apart. It's starting to become disorderly. It's starting to become ugly instead of beautiful. It's starting to become hazardous instead of safe and secure. And so as the curse enters the world, it feels like the darkness from those first lines is starting to creep back in and encroach and cover creation. And that actually culminates in the way that God curses mankind. He curses Adam and Eve with death, and he specifically talks about their burial. You were taken from the dust of the ground, and to dust you will return The picture, not to be overly dramatic, but very vividly, very literally for Adam and Eve, is that their sin and rebellion has cost them a right relationship to the creation they were given to as stewards, as rulers. Now they will be subject to the curse of creation closing back over them in the darkness of a grave. And so darkness implicitly lurks behind every line of the curse pronounced against Adam and all of his descendants because they will all be swallowed up by death. They will all be covered over from the dust, by the dust of the ground, hidden from the light of day that God so graciously gave to his creation in the first place so that they can lie motionless and breathless, hopelessly trapped in the dark. And this theme carries its way from that chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament. You can hear it pick up speed as you continue to read the story. Death was not isolated to Adam and Eve. Death comes in very scarily, very frighteningly in the story of Adam's two sons as Cain kills Abel. And then the litany of Adam's descendants is listed out in Genesis 5. And don't miss the way the story is arranged. It's not just a list of births and ages. Just like you had in the creation account, that refrain, God did this and he said it was good. There was evening and morning this day. The generations of Adam follow a different refrain. This man lived this long, he had this many children, and then he died. And then this man had this many children and lived for this many, this many years, and he died. Every generation is punctuated instead of with goodness, with the pronouncement of death. Every generation after Adam is covered over and sealed in the darkness of a grave. And the darkness feels like it's encroaching on the creation even more. Generation after generation... As you read through the story, you feel the darkness more acutely. Not just the story of Genesis, not just the story of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the rebellion of the people. Every story in the Old Testament feels like darkness encroaching in. Glimpses of light on the horizon, but darkness closing in quick. And throughout the Old Testament, darkness becomes synonymous often with vulnerability, 
helplessness and hopelessness and isolation and loneliness and despair. The worst atrocities, the worst sins are carried out in the dark. People are taken most advantage of and hurt most awfully in the dark. People cry out to God and describe their helpless, hopeless state under the curse as living in darkness. The book of Job, a very dark book in the Old Testament, uses the term darkness 40 different times, most of them to describe how helpless and despairing Job feels in the face of death and loneliness and anguish and loss. In chapter 30, Job says, When I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, more darkness came. Different psalmists cry out continually in their songs of both hope and despair, their lament and their prayers for help. They cry out repeatedly about what it feels like to live in the darkness of the curse. In Psalm 88, the psalmist says, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. A few lines later, he says, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness for me. All through the Old Testament... This theme of darkness covering the face of creation, swallowing up mankind living under the curse, it seems to accelerate. It starts to feel like it's coming in from every direction. So that even the promises of messianic hope are stated in contrast to it. The promises in the prophets and the promises that are given and celebrated at the birth of Jesus include statements about people living in darkness, waiting for light to shine. Even throughout His ministry, Jesus talks about final judgment for those who do not believe in Him, those who do not follow Him, those who do not love Him and enjoy the goodness of His gospel. He couches all of that very often in terms of being cast permanently into darkness. to a point where the darkness is no longer encroaching, but is all-encompassing and enveloping. Gospel writers talk about unredeemed humanity as those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Not to torture the imagery out of the Gospels, but even think about the way Jesus is anguished when He sweats drops of blood praying to the Father, asking that the judgment would pass from Him, anguished over what He knows is coming as He will suffer for us. Jesus is anguished in a garden and betrayed and arrested and beaten and tried unjustly. Don't miss the imagery all at night, all under a dark canopy. When He's finally crucified... The sun in the middle of the day goes dark. So that at his crucifixion, 
it feels like John's statement in chapter 1 is not true. True light has come into the world, and the darkness shall not overcome it. But at his crucifixion, that doesn't feel true to Jesus' followers. As readers, we shouldn't miss the imagery that it looks like darkness has finally closed over all of creation, and creation has returned to those first few lines of the Genesis story, formless and void, empty and severe, uncertain, vulnerable, and hopeless, with darkness over the entire surface. The biblical imagery is more for us than just language and metaphor. This is our experience. This is the way we talk about darkness, even in English. This is the way we talk about darkness in our everyday conversation. This is the way we define and identify our experience under the curse. When we talk about things being uncertain, when we feel isolated or are lost in grief, when we are depressed, and when we feel lifeless, we talk about living in the dark. We talk about feeling dark. We feel like darkness is all around. We even describe our hope in terms of living in the dark. We talk about hope as the light at the end of the tunnel we live in now. We describe our pain like living isolated in a tunnel where light is far away and hasn't penetrated the darkness we live in now. It's why books like Cormac McCarthy's The Road actually fit our experience under the curse very well. I don't know how many of you read it. I don't know how many of you saw the movie. I don't know how many of you would like it. But in The Road, Cormac McCarthy describes life under the curse very, very well. He talks about the experience in this cold, dark world for a father and a son who live every day very vulnerably and very hopelessly. And he uses lines like, there is a cold in the world that could crack stones and a dark so deep it hurts your ears for the listening. Darkness so deep that you can't see anything and you're left reduced to another sense. And while you listen for something in the dark, you can even hear the emptiness he's saying. Cormac McCarthy said that he was writing a book to describe what it looks like in a world where hope is dead. You and I are aware of darkness. We can feel darkness. That's the way we describe our sin as well. The sin that lives inside of us, the sin that we see ourselves carrying out, and the sin that we see around us in the world. I was talking with Jason and Lenore Owsley last week at the dinner before School of Life and Doctrine, and they had just completed a three-day training so they could look at options for adopting children out of the foster care system. It requires a three-day training, and as they described it to me, basically, you spend three days, not every hour, but most hours, listening to people talk to you about the most atrocious things you can think of carried out against children. 
They said it was immensely heavy. They were exhausted by the end of it. And their summary statement was, it is hard to sit there and find out and be reminded that there is so much darkness. We don't like to think of it, but darkness does live in the world. We really don't like to think of it too much, but darkness does live inside of us. The darkness that crept back in after Adam's sin and rebellion is the same darkness that we carry out ourselves. Maybe not to the same degree every time, But we know what it looks like to live in darkness and to have darkness living in us. We live in a world blanketed by darkness, and we live as broken people filled with it. I hope you can feel it now. I hope that you're not despairing at this point in the sermon, but I hope you can feel what it means to recognize darkness in the world and inside of us. Because that is the darkness into which Jesus speaks when He says, I am the light of the world. That is the darkness into which God speaks when He sends Jesus and says again, if we could paraphrase Jesus' redemptive ministry this way, God speaks into this dark creation again and says... Let there be light. And he sends Jesus, the light of the world, to break into it. That's the way his coming has always been promised. In Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness all of the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. All the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The hope and goodness of Jesus' ministry was always wrapped up in the idea that He would come and puncture and deflate and expose and expel all of the darkness in creation. Remember back this summer when we were going through Malachi, that is the way he promised the Savior, the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. The coming of the Messiah was like the dawn of a new sunrise, the dawn of a new creation. And so that's what we see in the birth narratives of Jesus. In the opening chapters of any account of his ministry, Jesus The light of the world enters his creation. He is born at night in what might as well be the equivalent of a homeless shelter. And he's announced by a star and praised by a radiant army of angels who light up the night sky. But then his light is hidden again. The angels leave, and the star, after it served its purpose, no longer lights up the night sky. And Jesus lives in obscurity, misunderstood and accused and hated and believed. But his light is not obvious to all. His light has not, by this point, 
when we get to John chapter 8, at this point, His light has not expelled all of the darkness. His light is not overwhelming, illuminating all of creation yet. And He comes into that kind of darkness and makes the audacious pronouncement, I am the light of the world. And when you hear His words, don't mistake the presence of darkness when He said them, and don't minimize your awareness of darkness now when He says them to you. When you cry out to Him from your darkness, your loneliness, your despair, the struggle and the hopelessness at times of your fight against sin, the uncertainty that you feel about life as you watch others around you suffer, whether physically with illness or under some other effect of the curse, don't minimize how shocking and how audacious His statement is when He claims to be for you and for all of creation the light of the world. That's the backdrop we need if we're going to understand what it means for Jesus to enter the world as its true light. And that's the backdrop we need if we're going to understand what His ministry as light of the world actually is. It's twofold as I see it. He is constantly exposing and expelling darkness. He expels our darkness in bringing us hope. But He also exposes sin for what it is. Be careful to catch and understand what Jesus is saying here. Read verse 15 very carefully in light of the context of the rest of the passage. Jesus is not saying that He never judges or that He will never judge. And I didn't read it that way a second ago. I read it to you, I am not judging anyone to make sense of it in light of the rest of the context. We tend to think of the gospel only in terms of the ab- only in terms of judgment being absent. And we cling to verses like this, but sometimes we misunderstand them. We normally recite the apostles' creed together as a summary of the gospel before we come together for communion. We won't this morning. For the past several weeks we've been reading the definition of chalcedon together. But normally through the year, we read the Apostles' Creed, and as a summary of the gospel, it includes the fact that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus promises through the rest of this passage that He and the Father have judgment to render, true judgment. So if you're going to make sense of His ministry as light of the world, His self testimony and his reliance on the corroborating testimony of the Father who sent him. And if you're going to make sense of the promise that they can and will judge correctly, read verse 15, I am not judging anyone right now. The point of my ministry is that I did not come initially to judge but to save from judgment before judgment comes in full. 
Jesus is saying, as the light of the world, I have come to expose sin, but to bring hope. I am not judging anyone yet, because I am the light of the world who came to be lifted up on a cross and judged myself in your place. And when I do, as the light of the world, as the light to all nations, I do draw men to myself. I do draw people into salvation from divine judgment. But that does not mean I won't judge one day. Putting things together that way helps us make sense of why the story preserved for us last week, the story of the woman who's caught in adultery, the adult tree, you can see why it's attached to this passage where it is. It's the story preserved of a woman who was almost surely hiding in the dark with her sin so that she wouldn't be known or caught, and she is caught. She's dragged out into the light of day for humiliation And to be condemned by religious officials, and they bring her to Jesus, the light of the world. And his statements are not meant to convey to you that he will never judge. His statements are not meant to convey to you that he is here to hide her sin. As the light of the world, her sin is seen clearly. He does expose sin, but he also exposes the darkness of her sinful accusers. And exposing them, he expels the hypocritical condemnation that came to swallow her up. He exposes her sin and theirs, but he expels the penalty, having absorbed it in himself, in the cross, replacing it with the hope of his resurrection and his new life, sanctification and holiness, new obedience that enables him to say to her, go and sin no more. We have all of the same ministry from Jesus as the light of the world and the light for us. All of the same life-giving ministry continues for us by the strength of his own life And by the continued ministry of His Spirit, Jesus continues to cut through the darkness around us and inside of us. He exposes all of our sin, but then He expels our sin with new life, new holiness, new rest, new birth, new hope. real change given by His Spirit. He exposes all the realities that lie behind our despair. He expels them with His assurance, with His confident proclamation that He is the light of the world and one day He will be the light that envelops all of creation and expels all of the darkness. One day, as John, the same apostle, writes for us in Revelation, Jesus will expel the curse, every effect, including the loneliness, including our removal from the Lord's presence, including our being cut off 
from God Himself. He will remove all of those things. His light will expel that darkness because we will live in the light, as John says it, of His presence. One day we will live in His light in a world remade where darkness has been eradicated and His work of redemption and recreation are complete. We are not left to walk hopelessly in the darkness now. But don't take what you have now as the entire fulfillment of His promise. In that final time, in the eternity that waits for all of Jesus' people, all of His followers, all of His redeemed loved ones, in that eternal reality, we will not walk in darkness And that's what He promises us here. When creation and redemption are complete and Jesus is the light of the new city, and as John says it, there is no night. There is no darkness. All the things we said in the very opening of the sermon, there's no vulnerability, no loneliness, no hiding, no fear of the unknown, no helplessness, no despair. Nothing is uncertain. Everything is seen clearly. The beauty of creation is restored, but not hidden under a shadow. It's exposed. It's enjoyed and celebrated. So as you encounter darkness, whether that's outside of you, or you wrestle with darkness in the deep recesses of your heart, Hear and cling to the hopeful words of Jesus daily. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Amen.